News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorker's podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers. The city. I'm Professor Christina Greer here with Katie Honan. Harry Siegel is off today. Let's jump right in with just some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York City. Thank you, Chrissy. Okay, here's the news of the week. Mayor Eric Adams has limited the time single adult asylum seekers can stay at the city shelters, giving 60-day notice to anyone who has stayed for longer than 60 days in the city's care. Mayor Adams told reporters last week, quote, we have no more room in the city and we need help, end quote, as he continued to ask for more money and resources from the federal and state government. New York City shelters currently house an all-time high of more than 105,000 people, including more than 54,000 migrants. To meet the demand, the city has opened nearly 200 facilities to shelter asylum seekers, and this is since last spring. They've repurposed church basements, gyms, and warehouses, and opened 13 large-scale HERCs. Speaking of HERCs, on Monday, the city's public hospital system, which operates those shelters, put out a request for proposals for private vendors to take over the day-to-day management of these shelters. This is per my colleague Gwyn Hogan's reporting. Whoever is selected will have to, quote, be able to provide full-scale project management support, end quote, as the city continues to struggle with housing and taking care of so many asylum seekers. A special election will be held September 27th to replace Assemblymember Daniel Rosenthal, who represented Kew Gardens Hills and College Point and Electrester and other neighborhoods in Queens since 2017. He stepped down to take a job with UJA, Federation of New York. The Wall Street Journal reported this week that Lyft is looking to sell off its 68,000 scooters and bikes. This is as curbed reported on why those speedy e-bikes so often do not work. Reporter John Sirico found that City Bike didn't anticipate as much demand for its newest e-bike fleet, the light gray speedy bikes, which means they'll likely last two years instead of a predicted five. So ride them while you can if you can find one that works. And finally... Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined the picket line with striking SAG actors on Monday, asking how many private jets does David Zasloff need, and telling reporter Jeff Colton that she did see Barbie this weekend in Astoria because it's a union production. Oh, interesting. That brings us to our guest today, Jeff Colton, born and raised in Phoenix before moving to New York City to attend the prestigious Fordham University. Go Rams. He works at New York One. (laughs) Go Rams. Um, (laughs) He worked at New York One and then joined City and State, where he was for eight years, where he covered New York City and sometimes some state politics. Last week, he joined Politico as part of their new playbook team, alongside Nick Reisman and Emily No, both friends of the pod. Jeff is a friend of FAQ NYC. He's joining us today for the first time. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for having me. Yes, we are very excited to uh, to revamp Playbook, uh, but uh, I do just have to throw in. I came on FAQ back in the 2021 mayor's yeah, race. That's, we talked was, about some excitement. I'm, fuck, you know, I'm sorry. Say, I was like, yeah, I'm reading the script. Listen, everybody knows I'm Ron Burgundy. You put a script in front of me, I'll read it. But I was like, I've talked to Jeff on this pod before, I checked, but I'm just going to read it. That's okay. You, you know what, Katie? It's like, basically, this is this this podcast is BK and AK. It's either before Katie or after Katie. So <laughs> Jeff was on BK, 
And it doesn't no memory because it was before Katie Honan. So that was just a whole different era, Katie. Don't worry about it. And he's a different um, man now. He's got a new right. job. Exactly. That was old Jeff. Listen, exactly. I'm fascinated by the shuffling of the deck that is New York City political reporters. I mean, it's so many fascinating people going different places. We've got, I don't know what's going on in New York One. Okay, that's a different podcast. Um, but it seems like there's mass exodus there. We've got Politico building the squad. You know, you've got Juan Manuel Benitez going to Columbia Journalism School, where it looks like Jelani Cobb is just like building up a super team over there. Um, I know we we support the Newmark School on this podcast, Katie Honan. Yeah, I baby. get it. I don't um, speak of Columbia. <laughs> that's right. Um, but I did go to Columbia, but that's okay. Um, so we've got love for everybody, but I'm so excited for this new um, venture for you and Emily and um, and Nick. So tell us a little bit more about how that came to be and what you're most excited about working on once you get over to Politico. Yeah, so it was funny. I mean, at least for me, we were all recruited separately. Uh, you know, I, I only found out late that, uh, that Emily and Nick would also be joining uh, Politico at the same time. And I was extremely excited i mean i like i like yelped on the phone when they told me uh because i'm do you want to give us a sample of of that uh, it was like woo, like, yeah i mean yeah emily no i've i've known personally i see her uh at work events you know at, at uh, press conferences and such all the time uh and we're members of the inner circle together we sing and dance mm. on stage once a year so big fan of emily and most of all her reporting i mean just you know really solid really knows elections and then nick reisman because he's based in albany i i barely personally know him i think we've met once or twice but i mean his reporting i mean if you want to know what's going on in albany you've got to read the state of politics blog you got to follow his twitter you got to watch his videos so just like i mean it's uh I, I guess I it's can't call squad. it a dream team because I'm yeah. on it, but like, wow, I'm really excited you, you to work with those can. two. Uh, some, some have called it on Twitter a murderer's row. I believe that's a baseball <laughs> term, not about homicide, oh. but uh, we'll see. We'll see. What well, isn't a, a bunch of crows are called a murder? A murder of crows. Oh, yeah. 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 A um, gaggle of geese. Yeah. The gaggle of geese. You're the gaggle of geese. Well, I love it because I'm thinking like if you guys are, I know Emily's from Chicago. So if you guys were like the 90s bulls, it's like Jordan Pippen and Rodman. I'm curious as to like, who's the Rodman? Um, The 90s bulls (laughs) defeated my Phoenix Suns in 1993. with Jeff's style and clothing, I think he's the Dennis Rodman of this. He's group. the Dennis Rodman of the he's crew. Always, he, he, sometimes Jeff will whip out like a real like funky outfit. Well, I'll take. I'll be happy to be Dennis Rodman. I think. I think he dated Madonna, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's early. I haven't had my coffee. I was about to say I'll take small stuff. Um. So you know, before we get into sort of some of the the things that are going on this week, I just wanted to ask. You know, you. You were at City and State for almost a full decade. Give us a little bit of your perspective on the difference between covering the de Blasio administration and covering now the Adams administration. You you have basically a year and a half of an Adams administration. Are there some marked differences between the two? And if so, what are they? Because Katie and I, we have our thoughts on... We've talked about this enough. Yeah, we'll get a fresh voice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gosh, because the New York City Press Corps is such a ecosystem, I I feel like we all kind of influence each other when we when we have these discussions, because, you know, it's, 
not everybody is at every press conference. I mean, we, we kind of work together. We, we all try and uh, get to get to the truth, hold the mayor accountable. And we're both competitors and uh, cooperators, I think. And, and that's what I really like about being a New York City reporter. Um, so the Adams administration, I mean, it's just, it's just different. It's, it's a little more uh, like a lot of people joined the de Blasio administration, I think, because, uh, they had these like high-minded progressive ideals. I think it was very uh, Kennedy 1960, you know, mm-hmm. um, not, not, you know, not to say de Blasio was any Kennedy, but, you know, <laughs> inspired people to join a city service like that. Um, and with, with Eric Adams, it's, it just feels like, a it, it's maybe less, um, less focused on the, the like high-minded ideals and a little more about like, we're going to get stuff done. And of course that's their branding, but it, I think he's brought a different type of, uh, different type of person to city hall for sure. His appointees. And then what is that? What does hovering, that mean? Uh, what does that mean? What it means is, I guess what I'm saying is what I'm thinking of is like a lot of his friends, a lot of his family members as well uh, are, are being brought in. And then we're seeing a lot of turnover as well. We're seeing already uh, a number of high profile people have left City Hall, I think notably more than uh, than from de Blasio's administration, which absolutely saw lots of people leave eventually. That's city politics. But more people have left early uh, with the Adams administration. Um, and I mean, I'm just, I'm just barely scratching the surface of it. There's many differences. Yeah. But I had a quick question for you, Jeff, because Katie and I talked about this, uh, extensively and, and Harry as well on the pod. I thought that commissioner Sewell leaving, albeit it's a big deal. She's a police commissioner. It's New York city, largest paramilitary organization separate from the U S army. We get it. But I didn't see it as such a huge shakeup just because he now has the person he really wants in there from day one and is one of his homies and the whole vibe. I mean, even just the physical stature of the two of them together, Commissioner Caban and Mayor Adams, you know, and I always struggle with, I feel like sometimes the mayor thinks is a police officer first and a mayor second. So having Commissioner Sewell leave, even though it seems by all accounts, she was respected by the rank and file. I don't really know how the brass felt about her, but you know, she was making progress, but clearly was like, this isn't a ship that I can fully steer El Solo. It looks like the mayor is always going to be a shadow. Um, I didn't see it as a huge deal that she was leaving because I never saw the fit to be a really good fit from day one. You're coming from Long Island. So (laughs) my tone on Long Island. She's from Queens. She's from Queens. She's from Queens, but she was, you know, in leadership in Long Island. Oh. I was just correcting my tone because sometimes I get real like mm, Long Island. Um, mm-hmm. So I was, I was self-correcting. I'm working on things in 2023. So is it a huge deal? I mean, I, I tend to not think it was. Others obviously disagree. Um, where do you I fall think, on that spectrum? Yeah, I think policy-wise, uh, I don't think it's a huge deal. I mean, the impression I got is that... Uh, you know, nothing huge is going to change in the NYPD because I think that Eric Adams and Deputy Mayor Phil Banks are still going to be exerting a lot of, if not more, influence over the police department than they were before. But politics-wise, I think it was notable just because, uh, yes, that that the first female police commissioner, one who was, uh, as far as I could tell, pretty widely respected in the department, 
uh, was felt pushed out. And so I, I think it was really notable in, in that way that it showed, uh, it seemed to me like some, some weakness in the mayor's leadership to lose a police commissioner after only uh, 18 months or so. But, uh, but right, policy-wise, I, I don't think this is going to uh, shake up the city or, or I don't even know if we're going to be able to you know, even feel the difference on the ground, really. I had said I think it was of all the people who left, you know, and we're in our little bubble. So it's like, oh, my God, Max Young is leaving and no shade to Max. But the regular person doesn't know who that is. Right. Like Frank. Caron, oh, my God. Frank Caron's leaving. Oh, my. Like no one knows who he is. But the, the police commissioner, who by all accounts was incredibly well respected, um, you know, a historic position. You know, I will say last week I went to the ascension, you know, the announcement of um, Commissioner Caban. He, you know, everyone was very gracious towards Commissioner Sewell. Um, I know my colleague Yoav Gonan had reported um, some of the scenarios in which he, let, you know, that the mayor had asked, had kind of intervened in the um, Jeffrey Madry stuff. But you know, I think all things in due time will reveal them will reveal themselves. Um, and I don't know. I'm still hoping for a Sewell um, memoir or something. But I know also she apparently, you know. Doesn't like the New York Times had reported. She just wasn't used to sort of this notoriety. Even if you're a top cop in Nassau County, it's a, it's not as big as New York City, and you don't have the mm -hmm. same level of, you're not on TV every single day. You know, Long Island cops are on TV now because of Gilgo, but other than that, like Nassau and Suffolk police officers don't really get that much attention. Um, mm -hmm. But Jeff, if I could just, you know, I I was always I am always curious, just like your origin story, briefly. You know, you come to New York City. I guess what drew you to New York City and was a sort of always an interest of yours to get into politics and how did you find your way, I guess, focusing on New York city politics? I know some people think like, I want to go to DC and cover the president or something, which actually seems really boring to me. Um, but where your thoughts were, did you always want to come to New York city and, and how that all shook out? Yeah. I'll give the, uh, give the short version. I was, uh, went to a Jesuit high school, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Catholic subset, uh, yeah, in Phoenix, right Arizona. Way. And, and so that's why Jesuit of, high schools exist to filter people to Jesuit colleges. Exactly. Well, first, exactly. hopefully the seminary. And then <laughs> when that doesn't work out, then come on to college. Exactly. Look, like all Catholic boys, I think when I was around like 12, I was like, maybe I could be a priest. Uh, and then I decided pretty quickly against it. But, you know, carried on in the Jesuit education and wanted to look at a Jesuit college. Fordham was on that list. Beautiful Fordham University, the Rose Hill campus in the Bronx. Shout out also to the Lincoln Center campus in Manhattan. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, I visited New York City for the very first time when I was 17. I was a senior in high school considering, uh, you know, where to where to attend. And uh, I'm, I'm 17 years old. Uh, I go into a full on bar and then Piano Man comes on <laughs> and, and all these all these drunk college students are singing out loud Piano Man. And I'm like, this is the greatest city in the world. This is incredible. Oh, my goodness. And boom, next thing you know, uh, I end up in New York and I wasn't I wasn't like a student journalist in high school or anything. But uh, I learned about WFUV, the radio station on Fordham's campus. And I'm like, this sounds cool to get involved with. So I walk in, I get involved, and uh, that just brought me in to the world of New York City uh, journalism and pretty quickly after that, politics. Uh, WFUV, by the way, it's an incredible music station, 90.7 FM. Uh, but then they also have this great student journalism program that really mm -hmm. trains a lot of great journalists uh, who are almost all undergraduates at Fordham. 
and uh, and brings them into either the public radio world or just the journalism world in general. So that was that's my origin story, and uh, came into New York and City Hall through that. Shout out to Kill Gale, the Irish music on Sundays for FUV. <laughs> Absolutely, all the tin whistles and all that. You know, I think that's that may have been my my very first on-air radio experience was with WFUV. Um, and I did that quite a bit before I started, you know, chatting with WNYC. But I've got friends in Massachusetts who get WFUV on the weekends just because they love all the different music programming. It's it's really amazing. Yeah, the music is great. Um, so when you... I know you've been at City and State and you've really, like... I don't, I, I don't want to sound like a corny person, but watching your growth through city and state, you know, to this, your own ascension to Politico, I, I, do you remember like the first sort of big story you had um, at city and state and how you came about it? And I, and I will say, I, you know, sitting in the press room with Jeff, he's always working the phone, like a, like a telethon. He's always on the phone, people calling him, people coming in. So it is great to watch you that, but I don't know if you remember your kind of first big story. Definitely. My, my first uh, cover story with City and State as a magazine was was one about closing Rikers. Th- this was, I want to say, mid-2016. Uh, so it was when the closed Rikers movement uh, ha- was was really picking up, in its, at least in its most recent iteration. And I was just fascinated by it. And, and I was starting from very limited knowledge. I was a very new reporter on the beat. And I think that was just a really helpful story to like get to understand a whole lot of things about how New York city government and the criminal justice system work. And, uh, you know, the story was, you can't remember the headline or anything, but it was basically about like, you know, wow, Rikers is a hellhole. Is it time to close Rikers and talking to a bunch of folks and, Oh my gosh. I mean, just the news in the past, uh, couple days now there's been more depths and then my co- old colleagues at city and state just reported that uh that the department of correction has uh publicly reported 68 deaths in the past nine years but actually uh there's evidence that there's been 120 deaths under department of correction uh care and you know there's a variety of reasons why some of those weren't reported but some of them just seem to have been effectively hidden it's like why wasn't this made clear uh so you know rikers is is a whole can of worms and it's it's just an absolute travesty in many ways and uh, that was my first story and it's you know it's one that's been continually relevant through my entire time being a reporter obviously what should we be looking I mean, I know you can't predict the news, but as you move to Politico and and you and Nick and Emily, you know, get your sea legs, what do you think the next 18 months will look like in the city? I'm Nostradamus. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I mean, look, I I really like elections. So, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm I'm looking ahead to uh, the 2025 uh, mayoral election where Eric Adams is going to try and get reelected. Uh, I feel like conversation about that has really picked up in the past month or so. A lot of people uh, have started gossiping about that. There were a couple of articles written. So, you know, definitely interested. Um, you know, like everybody else, I think that Eric Adams is heavily favored at this point to be reelected. But, uh, but I also think that, 
you know, 18 months uh, or yeah. let me think, I guess it's two years now before the, uh, the democratic primary effectively um, boy, a lot could change. So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to give him the, you know, 99% chance of reelection because uh, other things could change. And I mean, there's just, there's just so much else. I mean, New York city is incredibly dynamic. I mean, one year ago, I think, I think it was about, yeah, this time in July, uh, we kind of had the first press conference from Eric Adams saying, boy, you know, there's uh, a lot of asylum seeking migrants uh, coming into New York City. You know, we're, we're kind of struggling to keep up here. Um, and now that has been one of the major stories in New York City politics for the past year. And yeah, you know, a year and a week ago, uh, I hadn't even heard of it. This was this was just coming. This was a, a new uh, policy issue, new political issue that was coming to head. So, right, you can't predict. But of course, I mean, I think the re-election is going to be a big thing. I'm curious to see also if the city council starts to, uh, you know, flex its muscles, maybe be a little more interesting. I think they've had a very slow start, but because partly because they've had so many new members. Uh, but now everyone is kind of going to be going into their second term. We've seen some battles with Eric Adams uh, as generally as the city council acting as a kind of a more progressive counterweight but you know there's there's uh, it depends on the issue but definitely going to be paying attention to the city council i think it's going to become a more interesting uh legislative body in the next year or two and just point of clarification city council members do have to run again in 2025 am i correct yes yes so even they though they also, ran in 2021 they ran in 2023 and they will also run in 2025 Non-stop exactly. elections that 1% of eligible voters can right. vote in. <laughs> right. It's just such a colossal waste of money. Jeff, I wanted to ask, and before we, I do want to get back to, what do they say, put a pin in it on the city council? But, you know, looking ahead to 2025. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, Hilaria Baldwin. Uh, what what did they say? Hilaria. Do they say, what did they say? They put a pin in it? Okay. Thank you, Katie. Yes. Get out of here. <laughs> I think I heard someone say that once and I was like, wow, that makes me want to die. I'll repeat it on the podcast. Right. Um, well, no, the, the new thing is you just say, uh, uh, I don't know how to say this in English. So then everyone thinks you're like worldly and bilingual. Yeah, I'm not. I think of the, um, the bugs at the Museum of Natural History where they have them kind of splayed out in display <laughs> cases and they're pinned. They're pinned to the wall. That's what you and think. When you, they put a pin. I'm picturing being Jeff's pinned to like, the wall oh my. like a little bug. <laughs> this podcast 51, took a turn. <laughs> the city council members is pinned. But when it comes to 2025, as we stand this moment, at you know, at this moment in time, it just does. I can't uh, picture someone who could challenge Eric Adams and, and really defeat him with the money the mayor has and all that. Mm -hmm. And I know there are no real moral victories if you lose in politics. But, you know, do you think someone could make a run of it in 2025 to sort of then set the tone for 2029? Or I don't know what the sort of strategy is for that. And, you know, if it's sort of like, I'm going to run to the way, way far left to at least maybe push. Cause I do think if, if mayor Adams sees some momentum behind a really far left challenger, who knows which way he might maybe move things. So I don't know your take on that. And even if you want to name some names, if you, you know, we've all hear people, but I don't know who you think might could, could might be, or even maybe a, a, a more, a way more conservative Democrat. And of course a Republican, you know, with some people with the way that looking at the way some districts shape shaped up for the council races and and could be for november things do turning red 
a little bit. Sure, sure. Look, you know, Curtis Lewa, um, I think overperformed in in twenty twenty one. I don't, I don't think at this point a Republican. Uh, I don't think at this point a current Republican has a shot at uh, at winning in twenty twenty five. Um, you know, Eric Adams, of course, former Republican. And look, a lot of Republicans really like the guy. They think he's kind of the best they could actually get as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. So interesting to uh, to see with that. I think there's definitely going to be a progressive challenger to the mayor. Um, you know, he himself has been like, there's a coordinated effort to take me down. And people joke about it because the way he talks about it. But like, it's entirely true. I mean, there <laughs> absolutely is. There is a coordinated There are a lot of progressives and they're all texting each other and talking about, okay, how do we take Eric Adams down? How do we get a more progressive mayor instead? So he's, he's, you know, he's not the conspiracy theorist there. It's happening. And I think that depending on, you know, if it's status quo, if Eric Adams stays at at this level of relative popularity and, you know, no surprise, massive scandals or whatever, uh, then, yeah, I think the chances of a progressive beating him in 2025 are low. And I think that there will be a push more to just get out there, just push him to the left. You'll probably lose. But then, hey, maybe if you do a great job as a candidate, then we will all support you in 2029 when it's an open seat again. And I mean, that could be, you know, boy, there's a lot of progressive politicians in the city and there's a lot of them who are ambitious and I think a lot of them are considering that they're like, okay, yeah, maybe I'll lose in 2025, but you know, you could become the hero. You could become the progressive standard bearer and a big name. And I think there's going to be some temptation for that. Uh, So, yeah. But Jeff, that's my question because there are a lot of progressives and there's a lot of temptation. Will the progressives be able to organize themselves because it's still ranked choice voting. So are you going to have three and four progressives all running, and then they essentially cancel themselves out yet again. And do you think Eric Adams is sort of banking on that? Because again, a lot could happen between 2025 and 2029. I mean, I think Christine Quinn thought, you know, after Bloomberg's third term, she was the heir apparent and the winds of the city had turned actively against her uh, for a host of reasons. But, you know, there was that setup where it's just like, oh, well, if you sort of how about the mayor in this end? And then, you know, you'll you'll sort of be rewarded on the back end. So that's not even guaranteed. Do you think that the left can get themselves together and actually put up one person that actually has a chance to defeat the mayor? Yeah. So for, and, for 2025, I think that is likely. I think there will be a lot of coalescing around one progressive standard bearer just because that is like the main conversation people are having. I mean, every progressive that I talk to, anybody who doesn't like Eric Adams and is in some sort of organizational progressive job, they're like, we need to coordinate. We need to coordinate. Everybody is like shook thinking back to 2021, where the progressive movement was split between Stringer and Morales and Wiley. And then Stringer went down and then Morales went down and then everybody ran to Wiley. But the, the thought was, it was like too little too late. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very much on the top of people's minds. So for 2025, yeah, I think I think that uh, the progressive movement will coalesce behind one candidate. I mean, look, there might also be a paperboy prince that runs in there, somebody that you know gains like a few percentage points. But uh, I think I think the main one, 2029, when it's an open seat again, Wild all West. bets are off. I yeah. mean, I'm sure it's going to be just like 2021 again. We're going to have you know 
15 candidates on the ballot or something and and 40 candidates that try to make the ballot. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I I think that progressive really, everyone's talking about, Hey, we've got to learn our lesson. What I, what I feel and think, which are sometimes the same is (laughs) that there are a lot of people who on the left who dislike the mayor and they're so blinded by their disdain for the mayor they're not paying attention to some of the things that the mayor is actually doing, good and bad. So, and I'm this is a subtext for all the people who like to email Harry to say that I'm too kind to the mayor. <laughs> That's what this this is where this statement's coming from. So this mayor is really good at politics. And I think that he is sprinkling enough policy around the city for different groups, white ethnics, black ethnics, you know rich folks not bothering them, not making them integrate their schools. Like there are a lot of things that he's doing that are either keeping people silent or keeping people supportive. So I think that there's some progressives that just really dislike him. Maybe it's the corruption. Maybe it's Phil Banks. You know, maybe it's the dragging your feet on universal pre-K. Maybe it's the fact that Rikers isn't yet solved, that no one seems to be able to solve it. The list goes on and on as to why they might dislike him. But there, it seems as though they have a tunnel vision of like this disdain, which also sometimes I think this is where a racial component comes in, where they're like, oh, he's not smart. That's a mistake. Um, Because the man is smart and he may be smarter than them. And they're going to look up and see how someone goes from being a beat cop to the mayor and realize he's actually very smart. So how does the left kind of change that calcified perception of this unsmart, corrupt, non-working mayor where I'm like, "Mm, you're one out of three. Like (laughs) he may have some corrupt corruption and corrupt people, but as Harry and Katie and I have talked about, it's like, well, what's the level of corruption that people really care about? Mm. You know, like most voters don't really care if you have, you know, a Phil Banks in your circle. Um, de Blasio had lots of corrupt people in his circle. So it's like, it's a level of corruption. We're just kind of accustomed to it's American way. So the man knows the city very well. So if the left is supposed to organize and get a candidate that can actually take down Eric Adams, how would they strategize to do that? Because policy-wise, it seems like he's sprinkling enough to different groups to kind of placate them and essentially make Scaffolding. I mean, that's the one that comes to mind immediately. He just made this announcement about cleaning up the scaffolds. I mean, if he can make a notable difference on city streets, taking down the the sidewalk sheds in front of buildings, I mean, that's going to win him votes. That, you know, that will. Um, These are the issues uh, that when people <laughs> win candidates votes that I think a lot of folks who pay attention to politics, but they aren't politicians, don't understand. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, look, closing Rikers, I mean, boy, that's uh, that's that's a much more difficult uh, you know, not that taking down scaffold will be too easy, but, uh, you know, that's a more complicated uh, policy question. Whereas like, yeah, you can just focus on uh, quote unquote, getting stuff done, you know, getting rid of sidewalk sheds, um, sweeping the homeless folks off the street and, uh, you know, making them go somewhere else. Boy, that's going to, uh, it's going to win the mayor a lot of votes. So uh, your, your point is, I, I, you know, have heard you say this many times on FAQ. And I think it is a very important one to make because yeah, too many people are quick to just write off the mayor as like, I don't know, was he just like lucky that he became mayor? Like, 
I mean, hey, of course, that's a little I don't know bit what of kind of, but de, de Blasio's lucky. De Blasio's the <laughs> luckiest man I've ever encountered. You don't become a black man beat cop and the second mayor of the largest city in the United States. It's just, it doesn't happen in this country. Like, it just doesn't happen that way. Like, it's not luck. So, I mean, yes, Scott Stringer but, including Maya including like there's not Maya, um, Diane Morales, you know, like having Catherine Garcia and Maya, like, yes, that's a little bit of Scott luck Stringer for, too. And I, for I think Scott guy. Stringer's story took a lot of wind out of the progress, you know, there was absolutely so like, a lot of that I would ca- that I would put in a luck category. But how Eric Adams ascends from being a beat cop to a politician to a pretty savvy one at that is something that because he isn't your Corey, Hakeem, Fenty, Obama, Dinkins, you know, lawyer, sort of speaks a certain way, you know, the word articulate drives me insane. Um, But, you know, he's not your traditional Black politician that a lot of white progressives are accustomed to. And so there's this knee-jerk reaction of just saying, like, he's just not smart and we can discount him. I'm like, that is a grave mistake. Like, I can't tell people enough. I'm like, stop doing that. You're going to look up and this is how you lose consistently. And I think, you know, Eric Adams winning and a lot of the power structure in New York, not knowing Eric Adams and not knowing anyone who knows Eric Adams is still very unsettling for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. No, I'll say the, I think there's very much that idea out there among some folks. The that the mayor is yeah you know lazy or or not smart the progressive movement you know the more organized groups like the the people's plan and the working families party and the dsa they're trying to be more disciplined in the message with stuff like eric adams raised my rent maybe you've seen those uh those mm-hmm. tv those t-shirts out there um which i think is very much a, a winning message you know even if you can't directly uh, connect the mayor. It's a little more indirect about raising rent, but like, wow. I mean, you know, whatever. That is a winning message saying mm-hmm. that Eric Adams is making the city more expensive. So, if the progressive movement can stick to that kind of message discipline and actually coordinate better, um, then I think that's a you know a better uh, path to to a, a potential victory of taking him down. But again, still, he is still very much the leader in the clubhouse and the the favorite. Uh, going into 2025 uh, at this point. But, uh, you know, also, it's not all about the election. Uh, the progressive movement and and is also trying to get policy wins. And, and sometimes the way to do that is by, you know, weakening the mayor or making the city council, uh, <laughs> reminding them they have a little bit of power. And and there's, there's steps along the way. And uh, I think that, you know, as somebody who covers elections, I can often be too focused on 2025 and not thinking about the other goals along the way of, you know, certain legislation or the rent guidelines board or, uh, you know, things years off that I haven't even thought of. Nobody's even thinking of, but somebody is laying the groundwork for like Eric Adams laying the groundwork for becoming mayor 32 years ago. (laughs) And uh, it actually happening. (laughs) Well, God did tell him to run. So there you go. You got to start with that. Jeff, you created a perfect transition if you could visually visualize yourself being unpinned at the Natural History Museum <laughs> to talk about the city council. <laughs> I know. I mean, if you think about this time last year, the city council was in the middle of, oh, wait, that budget we passed? 
it cut a lot of money from the DOE's budget. Oh, shit. Did you know? I didn't know. <laughs> but now you're looking at the council where they have a victory on the veto override. Um, they're starting to get a little fiery. That thing where they edited what the mayor was saying. Um, they got some Photoshop skills. That was pretty good. So if you want to talk about how the council will could continue with this, um, and and especially maybe even becoming a little bit of a a further thorn in the mayor's side, maybe he'll start picking off even more individual council members to do impressions of at press conferences. I mean, he's done Lincoln wrestler to add to his Bradlander repertoire. But do you <laughs> just talk a little bit about the council's role and and what we could maybe see? I know they're kind of taking it easy this summer or whatever. Well, no, they have a stated on August third. So, but yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, they, they only legally have to hold one meeting in July and August, so uh, they're taking it slow. But uh, but yeah, it's it's been an interesting time. I think that uh, Adrian Adams has built up a, a good amount of uh, respect and, and appreciation among the council members. Um, you know, even even the Republican caucus, actually, which is just so interesting, the way that, uh, you know, the Republicans in the city council are generally much more integrated into things than the than like the the minority in the assembly or in the, the state mm-hmm. senate or or congress or whatever. Uh, it's a much more generally speaking a more cohesive body. Um and yeah, I think they're all, you know, they all appreciate the speaker and and I think she's going to be uh, you know, 99% chance reelected fine as speaker next year and get another two-year term to uh, to continue this. And yeah, I think uh, there was some question at the beginning. I mean, uh, her politics with Eric Adams' politics seemed to be pretty darn aligned. And of course, their personal stories of both being named Adams, both growing up in Queens and both going to Big Side High School at the same time. Crazy. Uh, one would one would think that they could end up, yeah, really seeing eye to eye and working together. Um, but no, the. Uh, well, first of all, there is some, you know, personal differences, but more than that, it's just the nature of the mayor and the city council. Mm. I mean, those jobs are meant to be, uh, or at least always have been butting up against each other and, and they have different goals and different purposes. And, and, you know, one of them runs a, a sprawling government and one of them runs 51 members. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, they really have been, um, battling on issues like street homelessness and on issues like housing vouchers. And uh, there's probably 10 other things that have happened recently that I'm not even thinking of. And I think there's going to be another 24 things happening before the end of the year of differences between the mayor and the speaker's office. So yeah, it was a very slow start for the city council. Nobody denies that. I mean, it seems like they haven't passed any, you know, marquee bills uh, until recently, but now uh, I think I think it's going to be an interesting time, and uh, both both for the personal storyline between Adams and Adams, and then also for the real policy uh, to see if the city council can can effectively push the mayor on certain things. I'd like your take. You know, with the city FEPS voucher bills passing, mayo a uh, mayo mayor vetoing veto override. It was weird because it was a veto. It passed with a veto-proof majority. There was some speculation that he's going to start picking off members. You know, I tried to do some, but it didn't seem to be happening. 
<clears throat> so I guess my question for you is why do you think what was the political calculation behind the mayor mayor? Why do I keep I think veto is tripping me up. Why the mayor vetoed it if he knew they were gonna override it? Was and I know it's not over yet, they could still do legal challenges. I'll leave that to smarter legal brains, but I, I want to get your take on why you think he did that. Yeah, and of course I'm curious to see how far he takes this lawsuit and, and whether it actually is able to to stop the bill. Uh, but I think, I think I, I get the politics of what he's trying to do. I mean, if, if he and his administration really think that this isn't going to go well, and this is going to cost them too much money, or there simply won't be enough affordable housing to put people into, which of course is a problem, uh, then he's just right now really, you know, putting a, a flag in and saying, I don't agree with this. And the way things are, you know, he doesn't run the government on his own. There's a city council. He might have to, his government might have to implement uh, this, this new voucher system, this expanded city FEPS vouchers. But, uh, but he is yeah, very firmly saying, I disagree with this. Um, you know, the, the, again, the, the, the cost of all of this is complicated. We've seen relatively different estimates. Nobody questions that the initial upfront cost is going to be very expensive. But the difference in opinion is whether that will be offset by all the good benefits of getting more people into stable housing. And simply put, the mayor doesn't think it's going to be offset. So interesting politics here. This is, of course, the first veto that we've seen uh, and the first veto override that we've seen in something like 10 years since the Bloomberg years. So, uh, but it's not done. There will be uh, probably a lawsuit, and we'll see if it gets implemented. It's it's an interesting, very interesting time, uh, and a very key issue dealing with homelessness and affordable housing, two of the hottest and most interconnected issues in New York City politics. Yeah, and I think those are, I mean, it'll, 2025, it'll be in play. We need to build more housing. I know there's been um, not enough being built. I will say one joke that I did not, this is a true thing that I thought, <clears throat> I did not share this on the pod, but when the mayor was about to veto the bills, Fabian ran into room nine. For some reason, I was the only one in it. I think someone was in the bathroom. And he said, the mayor's going to veto. And I said, veto who? Like, <laughs> like V-I-T-O. I was like, oh, there's, you know, there's God. a lot of vetoes in city politics. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. I veto pictured LaBella. a guy named Vito. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Vito Terso for those old school spokespeople. Um, Jeff, again, um, I wanted to end this maybe on something. Uh, I don't know if you want to add, I wanted to add something just fun and lighthearted. Very excited about your new job. We've already asked you what you're looking towards, especially the summer and, and further to the end of the year. What does Jeff Colton like to do for fun? The people want to know the man behind the tweets. He was doing a campaign confidential. What does Jeff Colton, the person like to do for fun? Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, I, I have a couple of bikes that are hanging up on the wall behind me right now. I, I really like to bike around. I ride, I ride bikes. I'm, I'm a stereotype of, uh, of a young, uh, formerly Brooklyn hipster, um, <laughs> outdated, you know, that's like 10 years ago or whatever, but, uh, you know, um, I do that. Uh, you know what I'm excited for? I have tickets to a fallout boy concert wow. next week. I'm so excited. Fallout boy was like my biggest band when i was like in junior high and high school and really pumped to see that so those are two basic things uh i got a fiance we love to bird watch together 
Um, but mostly my favorite thing to do is to text and call sources and get information <laughs> about New York City politics. So sources, if you're listening to this, hit me up. If, if your it bosses are listening, Jeff, his favorite thing to do, he ignores his fiance, Caitlin, who runs social media for sitting states. So all those jokes are hers. He's just like, please mm-hmm. call me, talk to me. Never not working. <laughs> it is it's, true. It's I'm sadly true. You're always on the phone. When I eat, when I look at your computer screen, there's always all these messages up from people. You know, you're always, yes, we sometimes glance at each other's computer screens. Oh, I did want to mention, we didn't get to, I know Chrissy had top off, but I did so much enjoy the run New York City, the, the celebration of New York City hip hop that you did for City and State. Oh, I yeah. Last, it was a great piece. I mean, Anything you want to share from that, just in terms of, I know last week we did meet KRS-One and Eric B at City Hall. You were doing a little reporting there for your new gig, but. um, I'm just happy that I timed uh, the story well. We knew that, of course, the 50th anniversary of hip hop was coming in August 2023. Uh, And so City and State and myself put out a cover story about how hip hop took over New York City politics. And that was a lot of fun to report i listened to a lot of old school hip-hop that i had never listened to before and then yeah and then uh, a couple weeks after the story comes out krs1 and eric b two of the most formative iconic mcs in the history of hip-hop show up at city hall you and i both got to uh, to meet them <laughs> and chat with them a little bit uh which was which was so cool uh you know the the politicians uh we we try and uh you know, treat like uh, human beings that we need to hold accountable. But uh, when it comes to, you know, just a couple of uh, old school entertainers, I feel like it's different. And I can be like, wow, KRS-One, that's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, I I knew the mayor got a lot of people were really mad because he said he's a hip hop mayor. I will say you don't really have much competition in the history of New York City in terms of hip hop mayors. I can't. I can't imagine anyone else, but, you know. Yeah, look, obviously, yeah, uh, people were not exactly happy with uh, KRS-One, <laughs> who used to be a very uh, progressive, conscious rapper, now seeming to embrace the mayor. But uh, you're right. Objectively, he's got to be the most hip-hop mayor we've ever had. So, you know. I'll, it wasn't I'll, Rudy I'll, I'll or Ed Koch, you know. It wasn't <laughs> Lindsay, but yeah. Jeff Colton, Politico, send him your scoops. Get it sign up for New York Playbook. If you don't have New York Playbook already, sign up. We are revamping it. It's going to be great. Um, and of course, you know, first read Playbook in the morning, then put in your headphones, listen to FAQ NYC. <laughs> That's your media diet. We're done. Read the city scoop, you know, see who got married and who had a baby and who's switching jobs and who's, it's all, you got to, the newsletters are there for you. But Jeff Colton, thank you so much for joining us on behalf of me and Chrissy and Harry's off. Adam is behind the tech. Uh, but thank you. Thank you for having me on. Great to be back. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are an affiliate of NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hosts this episode were Chrissy Greer and me, Katie Honan. Harry Siegel, our executive producer, was off today. Our engineer is Adam Kamara. 
Thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Stay cool this week, and we'll see you next time.